Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. When today's guests speak, they reinforce my three big lessons that I've learned from hosting this show for almost four years, and I weekly get to talk to really smart and accomplished guests. And here's what I've learned, three things. High deductibles are driving consumers, read high-value employees, to despair and ruin, and employers are awake how poorly this quasi-toxic plans are to retain or attract these good people. And I'll mention later why I say quasi. Pandemic number two has ripped the volume-centric fee-for-service in half, elevating two models that are actually superior, which is capitated value-based care and direct primary care on a subscription like uh, DPC, not just primary care, but other levels of care. So the third thing is I've learned is that free consumer healthcare is real and it's growing and DPC well-executed and design has an ROI way beyond a one-to-one way beyond its monthly subscription cost, it looks over two to three years like a three or four even higher return on the hard costs, and maybe even double that when you add in the soft costs, and we'll talk about that. Today's guests are maestros at the bleeding edge of these three solves. They wake the jumbo employers up, the heroes in this new ecosystem. They design and then they implement healthcare that works for all the consumers, employees, and to keep the noise down for HR because these plans are so well-received generally. The crux issue in this quasi-toxic high-deductible plan, and I say quasi because it's clearly toxic if you're an hourly employee, but it's okay if you're not, if you're on the higher end of the pay scale. Employees who are functionally uninsured and trapped are comfortably double the actual number of uninsured, which is almost 30 million, which any politician can quote. So how do we guesstimate that these numbers of functionally uninsured are double? Well, 80% of American workers are making under 30 an hour and 51% make under 20 an hour. So that's 80 to 120 million American workers, depending on how you want to count it. The feds say that most of these folks don't have the liquidity to meet the normative high deductible plan. Now the fed says that's $1,500, but the median in the country is almost double that like $2,500. So mom has a decent job, but a health plan benefit she cannot afford to use, functionally uninsured. So of our 80 to 120 million hourly workers, it's an easy leap that half are functionally uninsured, as many as 60 million, though nobody really knows. I'll be interested to hear what today's guests say about that. So this is 60 million plus employed have-nots that healthcare divides us into have and have-nots. So there's 74 million more on Medicaid, more than 130 million have-nots if you throw them all together. And if you add in some percent of the Medicare enrolled seniors in poverty, we can easily see that maybe half Americans are have-nots. And these are people that are having to choose groceries over their insulin, that are having to choose their rent over their kids' inhalers or their blood pressure medications that they need. 
So we're describing desperation here in the have not population. And it's causing a class warfare vibe out there and it's ripping the very fabric of our society in half. It's more pernicious than blue versus red or left versus right because half of Americans are losing due to health care. They're seeing their finances destroyed and this is not a party-based rant. This is a destruction of credit rant that if it just, you have destroyed credit, you are locking yourself into a crummy job, crummy schools, crummy neighborhoods. So high deductible health care is more pernicious and it's actually, I'd call it really wealth care, poor care. So let's look at this second poor state in the country, West Virginia is number one in the, or number two in the nation for percentage of people who have medical debt in collections. It's 27%. Now only 10% lack healthcare in West Virginia, but 27% are in collections. If you run the math on that is every four years, potentially everybody in West Virginia can be in collections. Said another way, if you're working in West Virginia and you have insurance, it's a sick lottery. If you're an hourly worker, you got to spin the dice and hope you're not part of that 27% that year where your credit is at risk and you're stuck and trapped. So over four years, that's possibly every hour or hourly worker. Okay. The Superman and Wonder Woman of this whole mystery, this crime scene, are the CEOs and the CFOs and the HR leaders like our guests speak to every day of the 145 million Americans who are with self-insured plans. It's amazing to me that not all American workers are in self-insured, but the jumbo employers have led this parade and they do it best. And the smaller employers are now, who are the engines of hiring in America, aren't quite there yet. And they've gotten slammed by COVID for two years. But the transparent brokers like today's guests are slowly converting the remaining folks into this self-insured universe. So the C-suite of jumbos and smalls are all awakening. And that's thanks to good folks like our guests. So two alarms are ringing now for leaders of these 145 million employed by the self-insured. An intense labor shortage, a loud wake-up alarm, it's like an air raid siren, and direct contracts are a first responder answer there, I suspect. And the CAA, Consolidated Appropriations Act, we've talked about a lot on this show, is a quieter, more scary alarm. That's the call from the ranger saying, we got a break in, it's not urgent, but it could be. And again, direct contracts is a logical path to doing the right thing as a fiduciary. Once leaders try direct contracts, to my experience, it's been a one-way trip. I also suspect our guests, they can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But I've asked five employers on this show who will all laugh when I ask if they'd ever go backwards in time from direct contracts. They say, no way, Jose. And it's rebuilding a new cash pay health system locally in Denver and Tyler, Texas are two good examples. What Rosen Hotels has done now in two school districts in Orlando has eliminated gangs because of direct contracting. They have a 14% turnover rate at their hotel versus 75% in the industry because of direct contracting and health savings. So we are celebrating employers winning with 20 to 60% lower costs, 20 to 60% lower use of pricey bloated downstream ER and hospital and specialist services because the primary care is cutting them off in the front. Retention and recruitment are jumping solidly when employees are using direct care. We could stop right there and drop the mic, but it's bigger and better the deeper I dive into this model. So today we're gonna to be talking employer plan design and I'm betting and I'm hoping we'll see if it looks like no deductible plans, if it looks like free access to primary care on-site or near site or virtual primary care. And I believe this movement is creating winners out of the employers who are the heroes, the story, the consumers and employees, 
the clinicians. I think outcomes are going up and costs are going down and community is winning big like Orlando, like Tyler, like Denver. And I believe the shareholders can win too. So the states of New Jersey, Montana, and Colorado, 10% of the school districts in Texas and Florida are adding in the pieces, direct pharmacy, direct primary care, direct imaging and labs, bundled transparent surgery centers or contracting with centers of excellence as Walmart has done, uh, direct pay specialists of every stripe. Those people take cash, no billing, no collecting, no pre-offs. EHR is different with no CPT codes. Then the funny thing is nobody's studying this movement Telehealth, there's endless studies, but not direct contracting. I don't see too many people reporting on direct contracting. The media appears to be asleep at the wheel. Maybe that's cool, maybe not, but no one has a name for it that we can all agree on. I've heard direct care, DPC, direct digital first care, virtual primary care. They're all subsets of direct contracts. So we have, because of these fractals in the stained glass window, maybe the media is confused by what to even call it or research it as. So. And we don't have a Gandhi or an MLK, you know, or JFK that's out in front of it. So we don't know who the leadership is, but we talk about it endlessly on primary care cures. That's the focus of our show. So no other model has everybody winning. Every CMS experiment has utterly failed of the 84 innovations out of their innovation center. Three of the 84 have promise. They've run out of gas on the other 81 and they're running out of time on the clock to save Medicare and Medicaid. And that's 130 million Americans that depend on that. So CMS has failed at direct contracting adoption, if you want to call it that. Um, so they've been contracting out to the bigs, their job with Medicare Advantage, uh, other programs. The feds have been completely gamed because we're not saving a dime on what we're farming out to the commercial contractors. And the taxpayers clearly are losing too because we're in big trouble in a few years. So the employers have had to figure this out because they had to figure it out, we have a happy ending to this story. Direct contracting fixes nearly every broken thing we don't like about healthcare, that we don't like about feeling powerless, where we feel resigned. Tens of millions of people have stepped into direct contracting who are functionally uninsured, especially the C-suite who's waking up. So I welcome today two global, well, we'll call them national experts on this subject, and they're working mostly with the jumbos. They're both senior vice presidents of USI Insurance, which is a top 10 to 12 benefit advisor, depending on if you look at the 2 billion in revenues they have or the 8,000 employees they have. Eric Davis has over 30 years experience in the insurance and risk management industry, and he's all about the compliance and financial accountability. He's an expert on vendor negotiations, on data benchmarking, on population health strategies, claims analysis, and a whole lot more. He holds accredited advisor in insurance uh, certifications. He's a certified insurance counselor, and he's a certified risk manager. Also introduced to you today, Scott Haas, who has over 38 years experience of employee benefits and care management programs, PBM solutions, provider network evaluations, evaluation and negotiation and underwriting. He started actually as an operational third-party administrator leader and a PBM platform, and he built them both from scratch. Primary focus is in the area of alternative delivery, as we've just talked about, but he really knows a lot about PBMs and health risk management as well. He's held officer level positions from VP to president level at Blues, at TPAs and more, and he served as trustee for both union and non-union pension plans. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron. Um, Y'all have any comments before we get going? 
You know, I think a lot of what you've discussed resonates with us. I think um, when you look at how you're trying to come up with solutions, for me, the thing that always pops into my head is what is the objective metric that defines the cost basis that ultimately needs to be understood before any other solutions are even discussed? Okay, so you want to have some kind of a foundation, like a, maybe a CMS rate and say that's what we're going to anchor it to, or you might want to have something else? Yeah, understanding the cost basis of what it actually costs. So CMS could be an example, but another example could be, you know, if a not-for-profit hospital starts at a 30% gross margin and then spends down to a not-for-profit, is that a long-term viable model? What would you say about medications? Eric, you want to jump in? Well, um, you know, whether it's the medications or whether it's the, um, you know, medical side of the equation, every engagement has to start with an evaluation of the client's data. And, you know, one of the areas in which the marketplace has been hamstrung is getting access to data. When we refer to data, we're not referring to reporting. Um, you know, there are a number of really good reporting tools out there that provide you information, but unfortunately, very few brokers or consultants have the ability to take raw data and to warehouse that data and to assimilate it into um, an environment that allows um, you know, the expertise and the subject matter experts to really review what they see in that data. So our analogy is that you know, data to us is an archeological site and the tools that are used, you know, uh, many, you know, our familiar ones would be a, a Deer Walk or a Cotivity or those types of organizations. Those are shovels. Those are tools that you may use to go to that archaeological site to try to uncover the artifacts that are meaningful to the plan sponsors and to the consumers of healthcare. And unfortunately, the subject matter expertise of identifying what's uncovered at those archaeological sites is really missing in many environments. And so what we try to do is we use those tools, but um, we're very blessed in having an archaeological team that consists of expert claim coders, of data analysts, of people that have been in the PBM industry for 25 to 30 years and have the ability to see things in the um, artifacts that are being uncovered that are not otherwise visible to the naked eye and are not always surfaced in these reporting um, formats and presentations. So, you know, it's important to us that um, one, we educate plan sponsors on their fiduciary obligations to overcome the barriers to get their data, which we believe is their property, and that the payers and other service providers uh, are functioning in a ministerial capacity to that plan sponsor and technically are servants to the master. And, you know, if you can't overcome that 
barrier and that discussion point, then plan sponsors themselves are going to have an extremely difficult time um, really getting to the point where information is made available um, to them because technically it's their property, they own it. But second of all, aligning with advisors that have the skill sets and the ability to manage um, you know, that data and the analytics. Okay, so you're saying the same thing that Chris Deacon said last week, which is it's not an ecosystem yet because the data is hidden. Um, so let me approach a question from a different angle because that's a good answer. If I want to get a any surgery procedure priced, I can go to one of our three guests who are free market surgery centers like the Oklahoma Surgery Center of Oklahoma um, and two others we've had on the show. And that's right there on the website. I know what that arthroscopic procedure is going to cost uh, guaranteed. And there's virtually no complications or virtually no infection rates. And there's dozens of these free market surgery centers around the country. Can't that be a pricing for some of the most complex hospital costs is to what is the surgery going to cost? Now, none of them have labor and delivery, which is the most common surgery, but they have probably 70 to 80% of the rest of the surgeries on their sites on page one. Isn't that sort of a benchmark like the CMS or the Medicare rate for hospitals? Um, yeah, I mean, any type of market-based pricing um, is always going to be favorable to the uh, consumer and to the plan sponsor. Um, you know, the, that, that, that is a market-based benchmark. A lot of folks will use Medicare as a benchmark for comparative purposes to really illustrate that the current PPO network or other type of network hybrid arrangement are grossly failing the marketplace because they're not market-based. PPO networks, in my opinion, are probably one of the most egregious forms of collusion in healthcare that exists, and they have failed to serve the plan sponsor who pays the bills and the consumers who, you know, basically um, are exposed to the brunt of the out-of-pocket, um, you know, plan designs, as you discussed earlier, in these high-deductible health plans. So I think that that all supports the movement toward market-based pricing that we believe that consumers have a right to know what services are going to be provided and at what price prospective to the services being delivered. And plan sponsors have a fiduciary obligation to also know that and to support that process. And, you know, and it kind of gets into the discussion then of shoppable services, um, you know, that are um, periodic episodes of care versus the other key issue that is a little more troublesome and problematic to get at is your acute care cases. So I want to talk about that. So just to close the round here, I priced a hip surgery about three months ago with the three guests on my show. <clears throat> They're all in the fourteen dollars to $22,000 range for a total hip replacement all in, um, not the rehab, there's going to be more costs on the therapy, but uh, Medicare rates are way higher than that. And the typical hip replacement is going to be 120 to 180,000 uh, around the country. So to me, again, that's kind of a good benchmarking is to look at, as you said, the free market and uh, Medicare, I think is out of the range of these numbers. Um, so let's talk about acute care. Now we're talking about companies like um, we've had a guest on the show that has reversed diabetes in 92% of the cohort 
that they're trading and they're going to hit their five-year number. So they're going to have a five-year uh, peer-reviewed study coming out that I think is going to show more of the same. And they are actually getting on the phone and deprescribing insulin for well over two-thirds of these patients. And they're certainly down-regulating or down-prescribing the doses of insulin for almost all but 8%. Is that what you're talking about with acute and chronic care is getting those kind of concepts to your employers? Um, you know, not so much that, you know, what we look at is when you look at active patients in any given population, we, we fall into what we describe as the 5% rule that 5% of a given population is driving and it varies by group anywhere from 60 to 80% of the total plan cost. What we tend to do is look at the 5% as being uh, individuals who fall into three categories. And those three categories are your chronically ill people, which constitute 80% um, of the 5% typically. And then you have those individuals who have periodic episodes of care that may be you know, an episode of acute care, but these are individuals that will move into that um, episode of care and typically return to normal life and work productivity within, let's say, three to six months of that occurrence. So these are those types of things like a knee replacement or, um, you know, other, again, episodic type procedures that, you know, are not necessarily life-threatening, they're life-burdening, and they may inhibit, you know, average daily, you know, activities of a, of a patient, but they typically return to normal or close to normal um, activity over a period of time. That represents, you know, a, a larger percentage of the acute care patients. But then you have your one to 2% of acute care, which are individuals who are extremely ill, then they typically do not return to um, normal daily activity and or they die. Um, it's, it's, there seems to be only a path of you know, one, one, or one fork in the road that takes you back to a modified um, um, activity levels or the other is just you, know, you expire and you're not part of the process any longer. And so when I'm talking about acute care, I think the ones that are the most problematic are the resource, um, just for lack of better terms, the resource hogs that are the acute care where there's all kinds of, you know, end of life activity that are, you know, basically sucking disproportionate amounts of resources and money um, out of these health systems. And then correspondingly, they cost more to the health plans. And ultimately, the end result is you're not really getting a return. You're just basically trying to, you know, manage these patients to the best possible outcome for as long as possible. So, you know, when I look at acute care, you really need to break it into those two categories. So let's talk about primary care as the quarterback or maybe as the TPA, the quarterback or some other navigation person in this uh, plan y'all put together, the design you put together. Who's navigating the acute care to make sure that they're getting the most efficient resources, the most fair priced resources, um, those that are going to serve the person best for outcomes? Who is that person? It's um, it, those types of situations are case by case because you're not talking about something that is um, 
as definable of, as a joint replacement or something that you can elect and determine far in advance. We're talking about somebody that has a rare disease that has to be looked at from a clinical perspective very closely in order to find some type of stability for them. Um, it's more monitoring and making sure in which the way that the care is being provided and what the charges are associated with them are reasonable. So a primary care physician can't define to a specialist that may be world renowned that is working with 10 individuals that have a rare blood disease that only, uh, I don't know, of 70 or 80 people might see in a year. Um, that, that's the conundrum that Scott's describing in an acute environment. You wanna make sure that you're able to establish relationships with um, the solution providers in this space and the facilities so that you have access to them. And that's the balancing act between pushing those services away from those facilities like you just described for a hip replacement, but also being able to establish a way in which to continue to have access for those that need it in facilities that provide special care that really is limited in access around the country and the world. So price is one question here is how do you get to what you call a reasonable price for services and medications and my second question would be really not about price, but about value. There seems to be clearly extremely low value care, low value testing going on out there and low value formulary, meaning lots of medications are sort of junk science medications. They've been approved by the FDA, but they aren't gonna add greater value over a generic, which is dramatically less priced. How, how do you help CEO, CEOs and CFOs and HR screen for high value, testing and treatment and procedures and high value medications. So that's, that's an area where you can use the primary care physician and um, the, the aspect of them being a medical home in order to establish a more managed environment for that process. But ultimately what we look for there is to define a process in which an individual goes through certain clinical steps whether it's prior authorization or step therapy um, or the like that allow different solutions that are lower cost and in some cases less obtrusive to be utilized. And if that doesn't work, move up to the next. And if that doesn't work and so on. So ultimately you're establishing a criterion that allows to find the lowest cost solution that will work clinically for a given patient. Well, and I think also the in <clears throat> some of the primary care organizations we've worked with, um, I would in the employer space, I, I would classify them more in the category of advanced primary care. Um, they're not subscription models; they're direct contracting with employer plan sponsors, and those organizations, I believe, are very focused on the value-based delivery of care, which includes referral management to appropriate specialists. But the key is that the care team and those primary care physicians do not let go of that patient. They continue to monitor, they continue to work um, in conjunction with the specialist and then repatriate those 
those patients back to the primary care environment when it's appropriate. And, you know, we typically then observe that, you know, when you look at key performance indicators of that primary care model, that you get a, a better return on that type of a management process in, in that type of a value care um, type of an environment. Look, I know you don't like to pick winners and losers, you guys, but are you saying that ACOs are doing a better job uh, with capitation than DPC is doing with treating these, uh, these chronic cases or overall? No, not necessarily. I think any kind of primary care is good primary care. We don't create bias between one or the other, but we do see a variance in subscription model, direct primary care, and their um, ability to align effectively with plan sponsors who may or may not um, buy into the leap of faith of primary care, for example. So what I'm referring to is that, you know, in, in the peer DPC environment, you have physicians that may or may not want to really provide um, metrics that allow us to measure the outcome. Um, intuitively, we know there's a better outcome. Um, I think overall, as the market is evolving, more of that information is surfacing. But, you know, it's it, the plan sponsors at this early stage, at least what I would call early stage of direct to employer primary care, and, and let me preface, I don't believe that some of the attributes of ACOs in uh, uh, Medicare <clears throat> um, are applicable to the employer marketplace. Um, so, you know, kind of setting that aside, but, you know, the key point is that employer plan sponsors, in order to adopt the concept of primary care, are basically moving these high deductible plans that many times are bronze or silver type plan designs under the Affordable Care Act. And they are then creating plan designs that fall into the platinum um, category from an actuarial value. And we are then trying to create an environment where the expectation is that cost will reduce. So it's kind of a conflict in the actuarial value concept of health plan design that we're gonna wave out of pocket and waive the cost to get into the primary care provider. We're going to waive or eliminate <clears throat> any cost to consumers that follow the appropriate um, referral um, direction of that primary care physician, and then perhaps only have cost sharing of any meaningful amount on the health system in those acute care settings. So that's what I'm getting at as far as, you know, not really saying DPC is better than APC or APC is better than this or that, or that, you know, you've got, you know, these, these uh, ACO models, some of which work, some of which don't. But, you know, what works in Medicare and Medicaid doesn't necessarily work in the employer market. So, but what, but where there are similarities, especially in ACO, is, um, you know, you've mentioned earlier, Ron, that um, CMS has really struggled with trying to identify cost-saving measures, especially around their ACO initiatives. And, you know, ultimately, those where they have been able to show some limited success are those ACOs that have been able to establish um, effective 
clinical and fiscal management strategies and are in downside risk. And that downside risk motivates them because they can become more profitable based upon how they can over, overachieve in effectively managing that risk. And, and that is going to be the same method, whether we're talking the commercial marketplace or the Medicare marketplace, the demographic of the individual might be different. That might establish what you want to look at from a risk management strategy standpoint, but the, the ideology is the same. You know, uh, you've opened my eyes to something, guys. I, I wasn't aware that advanced primary care was a, a different category than DPC or ACOs. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm completely unaware of national companies that are able to serve uh, you know, large employers nationwide with advanced primary care outside of those two circles. Are, are there companies that do that? Well, I'll give you an example there. One of the um, provider groups we worked with in establishing their APC bundle provided us with historical claims data from six commercial ACO contracts. And each one of them had unique differences, but there were established criteria that were similar in each. And we, and we went through all six establish the uniqueness of some that made sense to this group to utilize from their own clinical perspective, and then define what the APC bundle would look like that they would then take to market. And, and that, that is really helpful because in, in those situations, you start to see <clears throat> that these provider groups are getting pushed down by carriers criterion that the carriers are putting on them and they're trying to manage multiple contracts versus the carriers coming to them as clinical experts and asking them where they think they can create the most impact. So we were having those discussions with them for the first time and ultimately being able to establish something that was more custom and more in line with what they wanted to present as a value proposition to the marketplace. So is there such a thing as an ideal plan design? If you could, if an employer came to you and said, just give me like the, the fairest costs, the best outcomes, um, what would that plan design look like? Is there sort of an optimal that you've been able to put in place with a client, or is there something like the Nuka tribe in Alaska or the Rosen Care model in Florida that you think is just the bomb? I think I think you have to look at each scenario for where it is that they have unit costs and utilization anomalies. We like to say that data is our breadcrumbs and ultimately shares the story on where we need to go. But on a high level, I'd agree with what you're saying, Ron, is that you know when we're looking at what we wanna do from a delivery method, we want to establish criterion that allows for um, direct contracting, um, competitive pricing for elective surgeries, reasonable access for acute or catastrophic care, and that we have a um, alignment through a medical home that allows us to have a primary care solution that can support all of these solutions and that ultimately can provide service for the whole patient and be aligned with us in directing care to the right place at the right time for the right price. So do you agree with that, Eric, that we don't, that we don't have an ideal plan? Like you've got to have a favorite customer that says, hey, Eric, just give me the Cadillac. I just, because I know the Cadillac is going to be cheaper than the Hyundai. Just tell me what to do. Does anybody, is anybody wise enough to tell you to just design freely and create the ideal plan for me? Is that such a thing or am I dreaming? Scott, you want to answer that one? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, the answer is yes, but it's few and far between, primarily because um, my opinion is that many um, of the decisions of healthcare purchasing are made in a vacuum of finance and risk management within larger organizations and you know, are highly controlled by um, you know, a traditional HR type function. And many times the incentives of HR are more focused on disruption and managing disruption and, uh, you know, versus the reality of what opportunity looks like to evolve. And unfortunately, many brokers and consultants are not um, in alignment with creating uh, managed disruption that will lead to better consumer satisfaction, will lead to better fiscal results, and lead to better overall healthcare risk management. Um, a lot of people right now are still looking at so many shiny objects coming from them and, and very fragmented market solutions and point solutions that um, quite honestly, I think the, you know, the incentives for brokers and, and consumers and plan sponsors are all in conflict with each other. Now, I would say that the Consolidated Appropriations Act should be very closely um, noted and paid attention to because I think a key part of that in the transparency and disclosure aspects of the Consolidated Appropriations Act are designed to um, um, surface those conflicts of incentives and conflicts of interest that ultimately um, I think will result in um, better outcomes and for HR people to be able to look at you know, their particular broker consultant relationship and say, you know, it's been a safe place to use you in the past, but all you're bringing me are point solutions and products where I need consultative and risk management-based solutions that I can take to my C-suite that's going to change this conversation. Well, you just described what y'all do different from everybody else. I mean, that is a perfect market delineator from you versus, I'm guessing, the vast majority of folks out there. Correct. I mean, we walked into a finalist interview in Dallas a couple of weeks ago where they have, you know, 1,700 employees, but only about 500 are participating in the plan. And as we started looking at what the prior broker had done to them, you know, and, and I say that very deliberately, they moved them from self-insurance to being fully insured, which, you know, defeats a key aspect of, in my opinion, fiduciary obligation to manage your plan appropriately. But, you know, they were looking at, you know, a prior um, interview firm came in and basically said, well, yeah, we can put you in a MEC plan and we can do this and that. And they were basically product selling. We came in and basically told them, based on the information you provided, your plan is broke. You're in a death spiral. And if you don't do something to basically step up to the table, you know, these three high deductible plans are causing the, you know, your plan to implode this is gonna get painfully expensive for you if you go one or two more years in this current environment. And my point of this is that that was an extremely harsh statement, but it needed to be said, and it got the attention of not only the C-suite that was in the room, but their HR people. You know, Because here's an organization that's having a heck of a time hiring and retaining people, and they can't understand why, 
when all you have to do is go out to their competitor's website and look at what they're doing. And it's far more uh, progressive than what they themselves even realize is available to them. So it's, it's, it's almost um, understated what you're saying, but you're able to save them tremendous amounts of cost and noise to the HR, but you're also able to save the plan itself. Are, are you seeing any of your employer customers using the savings that you're able to create for them to either add more benefits or a, a, a more deluxe package of benefits, or they're doing more for their community? I mean, I, again, I think of Rosencare, a zero debt hotel, 6,000 room hotel chain that has uh, poured it all into their primary care. And, um, you know, it's a $5 copay and very small premium, one-tenth of that of the industry. I, you know, are you seeing people that are pouring that into the neighborhood and doing things with schools or doing things with the community to invest in, uh, you know, their brand? Um, you know, I would say not so much that <clears throat> as they are reinvesting it back into their own employees. So one of our marquee accounts is a group of about 700 employees that in 2014 moved to a reference-based pricing strategy. So this is a group of 700 employees with 26 locations in the Intermountain West. And, you know, on the surface, you would look at that and say, well, that, you know, our, our reference-based pricing is probably pretty risky. But what has evolved over the period of time is that had we continued in a PPO environment, their per employee per month spend using a 5% year-over-year trend would be in the area of about $1,200 per employee per, per month, or excuse me, per employee per month. At the end of 2021, they were about $540 per employee per month. What makes this group really interesting and I think indicative of how the um, employer is reinvesting is that we've not changed the plan design. It has very low out-of-pocket um, and so these metrics are all basically indicative of, you know, if you want to pay less for healthcare, you got to pay less for healthcare. All these shiny object point solutions, various types of other things that have hit the market, in our opinion, are, are distractions from the reality of, of cost is the issue. How do you manage cost? Will you manage that through a primary care model? But the key point that I'm getting at is that this employer is a ESOP. It's an employee stock owned company. And that one of the things that really um, resonated quite well with not only the employees, but their family members, is that every dollar spent on healthcare is a dollar that's not being contributed to your pension plan and your wages. And so what this employer has done is they've diverted the money that they would otherwise inefficiently spend in healthcare, and they have basically enhanced the contributions to the ESOP value of these employees' stock that is, is their retirement, is their well-being. The other piece of it is that we've used the reference-based pricing mechanism as a means to an end, not so much that it's a long-term strategy, but it is the two-by-four to get the attention of local health systems that we now have seven direct contracts in place with local health systems throughout the Intermountain West. We have over 6,000 safe harbor agreements with physicians where when they look at how this plan is structured and how they're being reimbursed, they basically have agreed not to balance bill. So again, it's, 
reference-based pricing is a modified version of fee-for-service, but it does address the cost issue. You know, the next phases of what we're looking at is how do we better manage those patients? And that is with the advent of um, capitated primary care. So what is primary care going to look like now that we've had the pandemic wipe out the independent fee-for-service? What do you think the future is going to be in the next three to five years? You know, that's a hard one because so many of these independent primary care physicians, they got bought by these systems, which we believe is the most horribly inefficient environment for them to be in. Um, we also believe, and this is very contrary, this is more opinion than perhaps quantitative, but we believe that a number of the primary care physicians who have, you know, bought or have sold their practices to you know, the optums of the world sold to these large health systems that they are not happy campers. Um, they hate the environment. You know, they're basically being put in a position where they are a means to the ends. And that basically is they are the vehicle to funnel patients to specialists that funnel, funnel you know, heads to beds within these, these health system environments. And that's, it's a horribly inefficient, um, you know, process. We believe, and we've talked to a number of physicians who are in these environments where they have had it, they're either going to quit medicine or they want out and they're looking to get out into either a DPC or an advanced primary care type of an environment that is independent from these, these bought and paid for um, arrangements. Well, it, it, goes, it goes beyond that too, because when you look at uh, medical students and they're trying to determine what track they go down, historically, you know, they're looking towards higher paying specialty um, tracks rather than primary care. And advanced primary care or direct primary care can change that playing field because ultimately, as a direct primary care provider, you now have a um, tangible and marketable portfolio of patients because you can define them as a stable revenue stream as opposed to fee-for-service. And that's something that can appeal to the right um, future physicians now because not only can they make more money, but they can stabilize that money flow and they now have a business that they can sell. So DPC and APC has a business application for future um, hopeful physicians that want to get into primary care. You're speaking my game. There are um, most of the folks on the show are DPC scaled national models who have got a nice long list of folks that are waiting to come on board. They're uh, eager to jump in. And also the full risk ACO models like Chen Med, not a big problem finding good people. Um, but they're, of course, looking for people that are treating older patients, more gerontology. Um, well, this has been a big wake-up call for me, and I appreciate uh, that I need to learn more about advanced primary care people to get on this show. Um, we'll do that for sure. But is there any, what is the best way for folks to reach you if they want to find either of you uh, and reach out to you? Yeah, typically, our email addresses are, are quite simple. Um, mine is scott.haas, which is H-A-A-S, at usi.com. And Eric is E-R-I-K dot Davis at usi.com. And um, if you could fly a banner over America with a single message, 
what would each of you want that banner to say? Yeah, that's a hard one without becoming very politically inappropriate, but healthcare is broken and it is dragging our, uh, you know, uh, middle class into a quagmire that is not serving their interest in any way, shape or form. So. And it, it's up to all of us as consumers to become more educated and be able to use that education to change. So said another way if you're in a high deductible plan it's your employer you can opt out and and tr uh, tackle this on your own with some solutions out there all right well thank you again for your time and uh look forward to our next visit uh we'll catch you again soon i hope thanks ron yeah thanks ron bye-bye thank you for listening you want to shake things up there's two things you can do for us one go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests and number two help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.